This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. We're going to start today with a short clip from a piece of music written in 1690 by the French Baroque composer Marc-Antoine Charpentier. The piece of music is the prelude to one of Charpentier's Te Deum works, Marche en Rondo, and whilst it has links to past French battles, I have an almost Pavlovian response to it, because to me, it conjures up just one thing. The opening credits for the annual Eurovision Song Contest, the largest televised music event in the world, broadcast annually to over 200 million people across Europe, Australia, and sometimes China. It is hard for me to put into words exactly why I love the Eurovision Song Contest so much. I know that when I try and explain it, I am often a little verklempt. I feel this huge surge of emotion and in love for an event that has been part of my life as long as I can remember. So on this week's show, we are going to take a journey together, part history, part culture, part Europop music. And at the end of the hour, we will end up exactly where we are today. Two days away from the 66th Eurovision Song Contest. Are you ready? Let the competition begin. This year it is being held in and broadcast from Turin in northern Italy. And I have a little help on this journey of adoration from a friend who is well known in Columbia's art circles, Ragtag's Director of Development, Stacey Pottinger, and Eric Nelson, an American from Minnesota who, together with three friends, has not only been making a regular podcast about Eurovision since 2019 called 12 Points from America, but who is actually in Turin right now attending this year's festival. I am so jealous. Plus, we're going to listen to some of the music vying for this year's Eurovision Song Contest Grand Prize. And I hope that with a little help from Stacey and Eric, I will be able to make my case as to why this contest that few Americans have ever heard of steals my heart every year. As with most stories, we should start at the very beginning, as that is a very good place to start. And to do that, we have to go back to 1956. And this was still very much a time of post-war European reconstruction. And one of the entities that had been created in the early 1950s was the European Broadcasting Union, an alliance of public service broadcasters across Europe deciding on stuff like broadcast frequencies. 
But at a meeting in Monaco in 1955, the idea had been born to create a European song contest with two main aims. A way to bring European countries together after the destruction of the war years and also as a way to test the limits of what was then new television broadcast technology. The inspiration for this musical competition had been Italy's San Remo Song Festival, which had started in 1951 as a way to revitalise that city's economy, and which is still going on today. The first Grand Prix de la Chanson Européenne was broadcast from Lugano in Switzerland in 1956, primarily as a radio show, as few Europeans had televisions at that time. The contest included just seven countries, not including the United Kingdom, which missed the deadline. We didn't arrive at the contest until 1957. Each country in that first year was allowed to submit two songs, and the very first winner was Lis Asia, representing Switzerland, with a song titled Refrain. rock and roll that was shaking the music industry was a world away from the crooning serenades of those early song contest years. Even the arrival of the Beatles in the early 1960s and the advent of pop music might as well have been on Mars for all of its influence on the acts that were representing their countries in those early years. The first glimmer of modernity appeared in 1965, when the first pop song appeared at the contest and won. It was an adorable earworm of a song called Poupée de Cire, Poupée de Son, written by the father of French pop music, Serge Gainsbourg, and performed by Franz Gall for Luxembourg. And that song slowly cracked open the pop door, paving the way for the United Kingdom's first win in 1967 with Sandy Shaw's Puppet on a String. Followed in 1968 with Spain's Maciel singing La La La.
Well, you get the point of that song. And the United Kingdom's second win and the contest's only ever four-way tie in 1969 with Lulu's Boom Bang a Bang. Come closer, come closer and listen The beat of my heart keeps on missing I notice that most when with me then Come closer and love me tonight That's right Come closer and put on me tight My was all going on a few years before my bedtime was much beyond 6pm. And although I am sure my parents sat down each May to watch the contest on their black and white television, I can't say that I really remember anything until May 1974 when this happened. Waterloo by ABBA for Sweden. Watch this one. changed everything. Well, for me at least, suddenly Eurovision had this huge anchor. It was where the global phenomenon that was ABBA got their start. And for me, I ended up doing a degree in Swedish because of that night in 1974 when I fell in love with these four glamorous Swedes. For the United Kingdom, the first 43 years of the contest were awesome. After our two wins in the 1960s, we won again in 1976 with Save All Your Kisses For Me by the Brotherhood your of Man. Kisses for me, save all your kisses for me. Save All Your Kisses For Me reached number one in a staggering 33 countries and remains the biggest selling Eurovision winner of all time. Then we won again in 1981 with Making Your Mind Up by Bucks Fizz and we were in the top 10 every year but one all through the 80s and 90s before we returned to the top spot in 1997 with Katrina and the Waves and Love Shine A Light. Love Shine A Light in every corner of my heart Let the love light carry Let the love light carry Light up the magic in every little part Let our love shine a light in every corner of our hearts Peace. 
Over the past 65 years of the contest, the United Kingdom has had more top 10 placements than any other country, and we have finished second 15 times. But for the past 23 years, the United Kingdom has been in the Eurovision wilderness, and we have been in last place six times and almost bottom an additional six times. What happened? And it's not totally undeserved. There have definitely been some low points, like 2003, when Gemini scored us our first nul point and proved that contestants are definitely singing live. And 2021 was another nadir in the United Kingdom's Eurovision career when, massively undeservedly, I would argue, this song by James Newman came last, receiving not only a single nul point, but a double nul point, not a single point from any of Europe's professional juries and also a big fat zero from Europe's televoting audiences. Sometimes I know my father Last place? I mean, come on. It's a fine pop song. He deserved better and was incredibly gracious about his record-breaking double nul point. But the good news for the British is that I do think our fortunes are going to change this year, but we'll get to that later in the show. One of the rules of the contest that has been reversed a couple of times is the question of what language participants should sing in. Back in the early days, everyone sang in their own language because that seemed kind of obvious. But in 1965, the Swedish entry was in English. And so, you know, it only takes one to stray for the rules to get a whole lot stricter. But forcing artists to sing in their own language meant the international judges didn't understand what they were singing about. Hence Lulu's Boom Bang A Bang and Maciel's La La La. We all understand that. So in 1973, the rules were relaxed, allowing ABBA to sing about Waterloo in English and become a global supergroup. But then minds were changed again. And so from 1977 until 1999, performers had to use their country's national language. But after that, things opened up, which, of course, also meant that the doors opened for these international songwriters to come in. Because at its heart, Eurovision is a songwriting competition. And it is easy to lose sight of that when you are visually overloaded with sequins, costumes and a stage that is raining fire and there are dancers performing in giant perspex boxes. But the songwriting is a very interesting aspect of Eurovision. And once you start to poke around a little you find these powerhouse songwriting teams, often with a lot of Swedes. They really know how to Eurovision. So the question that always comes up 
when I talk to Americans is, what is Eurovision? What is it all about? And it is hard to summarise. It's about songs. It's about heart. It's about this fabulous array of European cultures. But there's more. There's a, a sense of us overcoming history somehow. My continent of Europe has spent at least 2,000 years having wars, battles and territorial skirmishes, murdering and annihilating each other. And this contest, this, this coming together, this joyous event of music, cultures and yes, outrageously sparkly costumes, it fills my heart with the knowledge that we are one people all of which adds to the devastation I feel for the people of Ukraine, a Eurovision nation since 2003, now invaded by another former Eurovision nation. Back in 2013, we went to Eurovision, Tom and I. The previous year, Sweden had won with the fabulous Lorene singing Euphoria, which still makes my heart bubble over with disco love. And so the final was being held in Malmo in southern Sweden. I had said to Tom that next time Sweden won, I wanted to go to the final. And the hilarious thing is, the only reason we were able to get tickets to the grand final was not because of anyone I knew. It was because of Ina, a Norwegian girl who came to Mizzou in the 1980s to study at the journalism school and lived in the apartment below Tom. Flash forward 25 years and she lives in Geneva, Switzerland and works for the European Broadcasting Union and that's how we got our tickets. We met up with Ina and her fabulous pals. We had dinner in a crazy swanky restaurant and sat next to the fashion designer Jean-Paul Gaultier who was in Malmo especially for the Eurovision final. And my expectations of this event were beyond glittering. It seemed like I was destined for something of a letdown. I mean, how could it be everything I want it to be? But that didn't happen. That night in Malmo was so spectacular, so overflowing with everything I could ever have wanted it to be. It was the magical, sparkling apex of 40 years of love that I had poured into this annual music competition. I shed more than one tear of joy that night, Especially when a walkway bridge descended from the roof of the arena and each country's performers walked across this bridge through the crowds waving their flags. And all around me were 10,000 people 
who also were exploding with love for this contest. I don't have words for it. And the icing on the cake, it was one of my favourite song years ever. The Norwegian entry, I Feed You My Love by Margaret Berger, is in my top three of all time. That year, Denmark took home the winning ticket and to be right there in the heart of Scandinavia, watching the contest in the country I called home for a year and then seeing the trophy passed to Copenhagen. Well, the winning song, Only Teardrops by Emily de Forest, was definitely appropriate for my emotional state. The sky is red tonight We're on the edge tonight Shooting star to guide us I for a night Why tear each other apart? Please tell me why Why do we make it so hard? Look at us now We only got ourselves to blame It's such a shame And then, as if my cake wasn't already knee-deep in icing, the next night we met more of Ina's pals for a dinner in Copenhagen. Friends who were actually involved behind the scenes with the contest. There was a Swedish guy, Matthias, who it turned out was the choreographer for the whole show. And before I had finished marvelling in my proximity to stardom, I got introduced to their Norwegian pal, Jonola. I asked Matthias what he did, something to do with the voting system? And he laughed and he said, yeah, kind of. He's the executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest. I was so nervous and overwhelmed, I think I could only manage to eat a single pomme frite all night. But that fortuitous meeting, plus a little help from now my Eurovision bestie, Ina, meant that three years ago when I was planning a small segment for this show about Eurovision, I managed to get an interview all the way from Tel Aviv, where the 2019 finals were being held, with the all-powerful Jon Orla Sand. And my first question to him was, why do I love Eurovision so much? Yeah, this is the moment we share together. And uh, you don't watch Eurovision Song Contest alone, but close to 200 million people all over Europe and abroad who who is at the same time... uh, enjoying Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, but it's also uh, an ideal uh, an ideal event to watch together with friends and family. You don't even need to watch it at home. You can watch it in a bar. You can watch it in public squares all over Europe. So it's, it's a fantastic uh, get-together event that unites people, and that's also the purpose for Eurovision Song Contest. Since that interview in 2018, Jonola has stepped down from his job with Eurovision and returned to work with the Norwegian Broadcasting Corporation. But getting together with friends is something that I have made a habit of over the last few years in Colombia. Each year I aim to introduce somebody new to the contest and win them over. Last year's conquest was a woman well-known in Columbia art circles, Ragtech Cinema's Director of Development, Stacey Pottinger. So I thought I'd invite her along to talk about her Eurovision experience. 
So, Stacey, I do feel like you are the one of my Eurovision cohort who most fully grasps its campy, cheesy, <laughs> beating Europop heart. And you are the one that if I was spirited away by, say, the European Broadcasting Union to run their Eurovision operations in Geneva, you would be the one out of everybody who would carry on the watch party tradition. So do you feel... Oh, wow. I would need to get an interpreter. <laughs> Are you going to let us watch it in English this year? <laughs> I, I may not. I may not let you watch it in English. We may have to. It's more European. You guys, Diana makes us watch it in uh, what language? Swedish. We did it in Swedish, Swedish last year. Yes. So yeah. she could be telling us fake translations the entire time. I think you can probably get it from the context. Though, <laughs> really. I mean, there's not a lot of fake fake opportunity in Eurovision. It's pretty clear. It is pretty from the heart, right? From the first sequin to the last feather boa, it's, it's pretty obvious what's going on. But do you feel like I've instilled the right amount of nerdy passion in you for this phenomenon? I think so. I, I mean, I think there's always room to grow, but I feel like I, I haven't done my duty of enough um, research yet this year or watching of songs, but I was... This weekend, I was looking through some stuff because I knew you and I were going to talk this week. And I was watching a lot of the videos of the contestants from this year. But it's not the same at all if you just watch their produced video. You have to see the stage production. That is true because sometimes a video can give a, 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 yeah, like you say, a false impression because on the night they are singing live. It isn't auto-corrected in any way. And so that can sometimes catch people out. You can have an awesome video production and then on the night just things don't really come together. The staging isn't quite right. You could be extra nervous or somebody, yeah. one of your dancers trips. I don't know. But also it's just the look of it is totally different. You know, a video is a film production, but the live act is is often completely different from the video. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and I've seen many great video performers fall apart on the stage over the years. I can't remember if last year was the first time you came to my Eurovision watch party. But do you remember when you first became Eurovision curious? Well, I've been Eurovision curious since I've known you because I know that... <laughs> Um, just from working with you on Art in the Park, that there was a time that you would just disappear. And it was, oh, Diana's doing Eurovision. And I remember one year, you didn't you go one year? Yeah, 2013. Mm. Yeah. So I knew that you were gone. And, and I didn't really know what it was <laughs> until maybe three or four years ago. And I was interested, but I still wasn't, uh, I would say we sort of quietly laughed at you a little maybe. <laughs> so, but I'm here to make right all of my Eurovision wrongs because last year it seemed like it was more accessible to us in the U.S. and they streamed it on Peacock which I have a subscription to I had just had back surgery and I watched all of the prelims and maybe it was all the pain medication I don't know but I got really into it and then I watched the Will Ferrell movie. I was going to ask you about that. So, I mean, that did give a big boost to Eurovision in the US. Suddenly it had this 
you know, major star. There was a film called Eurovision Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Will Ferrell's been a huge fan of Eurovision for a long time because his wife is Swedish. And so, of course, for the Euro nerds amongst us, it just had a lot of artistic license. And it did have moments of truth. But as a newbie to the world of Eurovision, having watched the film and then watched the Eurovision Song Contest, how do you think it matched up? Well, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of aspects of it that fit, to be honest. And I don't know if that hurts you or if it gives you pride. But um, <laughs> I could imagine seeing somebody in a hamster wheel on stage with pyrotechnics. I could imagine that actually happening in the real competition. And the passion with which I feel like there's got to be performers out there who have the same passion as Will Ferrell's character for Eurovision. Um, and and then also I think that, and then you telling me that there were, I don't know why this makes an impact, but that there were a lot of American songwriters. And, and then when I realized ABBA got their start at Eurovision, then I was like, well, forget about it. This is actually legit. Yeah. And then in watching it, not just the campiness, because there's certainly some of that, but a couple other things. One, I love reality television. And let's face it, this is a competition, you know, in front of everybody. So there's that aspect to it that I love. And I like the tension of those things. And so that that is all all there because, man, it can things just can change in an instant. So if you were describing the Eurovision Song Contest to a random American behind you in the supermarket checkout line, when they said, well, what is it then? What would you say? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I watched you describe this to my colleagues last week. (laughs) And I'll say you had me about 45 minutes delayed from leaving the office because that (laughs) description... So I don't know. I don't think it's a fair question to ask me <laughs> to describe Eurovision when I've seen it one year. But I'm, I would say, I guess it's, uh, well, it is what it says it is. It's a, Euro, it's a European song contest where each country gets to put up a song, a contestant, a, a band or a musician, a uh, singer who puts on a performance and it's a... Um, bracketed I guess event with different I guess three two prelims in the final and each country gets their turn to sing and it's um you know there's a lot of um pride in each country and and then there's some wild voting ah the voting Europe start voting now I might love the voting almost as much as the songs themselves. And again, I have to go back to the early 1970s, sitting in my distinctly unglamorous Lancashire living room, watching this incredible collection of glamorous Europeans in far off cities. Back in those days, there were no video hookups with each country's national broadcasting representative as they revealed the votes of their country. They had to telephone them in. I mean, literally... The compare had to pick up the receiver off a rotary phone and hold it to her ear. Well, I think uh, we are all set. So let's call up our first jury, which is Finland. Uwe Iltar Helsinki. Chapelle Zurich. Hello, Vienne. Oui. Ici Zurich. Bonsoir. Bonsoir. Voyez me communiquer vos votes, s'il vous plaît. Oui, volontiers. Will you please connect me with Vienna? 
Hello. Wait, can you hear me? Here's Vienna. Yes, good evening. Turkey. Calling up Turkey now, the Turkish jury. Hello, Turkey. Ah, top line to Turkey. Here's BBC presenter Katie Boyle back in 1974 explaining how the voting system worked at that time. Now is the moment when we find out who voted for which song. But just before we do, I'd like to explain how the votes are cast. Now, each jury is made up of 10 members and each member can give one vote to the song of his choice. So each jury can declare up to 10 votes. And, of course, no country can vote for its own entry. Things have changed a little since then. There are no telephones involved anymore, for one thing, and the scoreboard is a lot fancier. Plus, there's just a lot more fanfare about the voting lines opening. Here's Yonola again with a description of how it works today. Well, the, the voting works like this. There is a jury composed of five people in each of the participating countries that will give their uh, votes and score all the songs apart from their own uh, song or the, the, the entry that comes from their country. In addition to this, they, there is an open public voting uh, via SMS, app or uh, ordinary phone where you can place up till 20 calls for the song or the songs that you like the best. These two different results is combined into one result, and then it's split up to points. Uh, and it goes all the way f- from 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 8, 10, and then the magic 12, 12 points, which is the top point you can get and the top score you can get uh, when you are in the Eurovision Song Contest. Ah, the 12 points. And 12 points for the Turkey. 12 points. 12 points. 12 points. Russia, 12 points. La Russie, 12 points. There is a general feeling out there in Eurovision land that voting tends to be somewhat geopolitical. Neighbours vote for neighbours, the Scandinavian countries all give their deuce points to each other. But the people that work within Eurovision will argue very hard that there is no political or geographical bias, really. But there absolutely is, because we I mean, it's almost not as exciting this year because we know Ukraine is going to win. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. It's going to happen. <laughs> but who's coming in second will be the big question mark. Yes, it certainly is. With Ukraine almost guaranteed to win the people's vote, who will come second? There are three leading contenders. Italy, Sweden, and I am so proud to say the United Kingdom, represented by the fabulous Sam Ryder singing Spaceman. At this point in our Eurovision tour, I want to introduce you to another American who knows more about Eurovision than even I do. Eric Nelson is one of four co-hosts of a podcast called 12 Points from America. The podcast is produced from Minneapolis and I caught up with Eric live from the Eurovision press room in Turin, where he managed to find a quietish corner to chat with me. I sort of know the answer to this question, Eric, from reading your website, 12pointsfromamerica.com. But tell us how four pals from Minnesota became passionate about a largely 
European music phenomenon and then why you decided to commit that passion to an almost weekly podcast about it. As with a, a lot of things in terms of my interest in Eurovision, it comes back to Samantha. She is one-fourth of the show of 12 Points from America. She introduced me to the show sort of as a spectacle. I had been familiar with the contest. I knew about ABBA. I knew about Lordy for some reason. But I hadn't really like watched a full contest or checked out all of the songs from a particular year. Sam would get a bunch of friends together to just share food and and watch all of the songs and see what everyone thought and, and a lot of times it's it's bringing in people who haven't really seen this sort of thing before and in 2014 that was me i was one of those new folks just experiencing it for the first time so my my first eurovision song was not alone by aram mp3 uh, and soon after I heard The Common Linnets and Conchita Verst, and I was just absolutely hooked. <laughs> and so uh, Sam and I are good friends through trivia and through local quiz bowl competitions that we both work for. So we had been friends on, on this one axis for a long time, and we kind of got to a, a point where we found ourselves just talking about the contest a lot, just amongst ourselves. And we're a group of best friends, and, and we just thought, like, I, I think that this rapport would be interesting to people. And, and Sam has a, a, a long history with the, with the contest. She's gone every year since 2011 and is now working with the EBU on site. She's here as well. And so we thought, we find ourselves entertaining. Why don't we see if other people do? <laughs> and... Uh, and it's gone pretty well. We started the show. Uh, it's been going on three years now. And now three of the four of us were here in Italy covering the contest. It's really been an incredible journey. So for you as both a Eurovision and a pop music fanatic, what uh -huh. defines a Eurovision song for you? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think one of the great things about this contest that I think a lot of detractors or people who haven't paid super close attention to it may not even realize is that as long as it's three minutes, a Eurovision song can be anything. It can be absolutely anything. I mean, we have a semifinal coming up tonight that has rock and pop and disco and guys dressed as wolves. And it really, really can be anything. When I look for a song that I personally really enjoy in Eurovision, I, I, I look for a hook that I can keep coming back to, just a really nice vocal. For the TV shows, uh, there is a visual element to it as well. You, you want it to have a, a, a cool staging and things like that also. But at the end of the day, a Eurovision song really can be anything. Some people say, oh, that song's really very Eurovision. But especially over the last few years, I think the meaning of that has really evolved mm. and changed. The music here has become a bit less stereotypical Europop sort of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I feel like from about 2011, 2010, 2009 onwards, it's really become a different contest than it was earlier on. So for you, you got hooked in 2014, and then by 2018... 
You were aiding the Bulgarian delegation in selecting their song for that year's contest, which is extra fascinating to me because on my Eurovision show last year, I chatted with the two Americans, music producer Trey Campbell and America's Got Talent semi-finalist Johnny Manuel, who found themselves mm -hmm. singing for Bulgaria that year. So, Eric, what was it with Americans and Bulgaria in 2018? I feel like I'm <laughs> missing something. Well, perhaps this won't come as a surprise. <laughs> this is all Samantha again. Uh, through, through those connections, and I think this happens with a lot of folks who do a lot of press for Eurovision. Sometimes you kind of jump from delegation to delegation or from website to website. Uh, Derek from 12 Points is an excellent photographer and has done work in that capacity for a few different websites and a few different delegations. Uh, as it turned out, in 2017, both Sam and Derek were, through some sort of connection, working for the Bulgarian team, so for Chris Kostov, which was a heck of a year to be working with, with Bulgaria. That song was tremendous. It came very close to winning. And I understand Chris was just fantastic to work with. And so they were back in 2018 uh, working with the delegation again. And they were looking for a pretty wide selection, a good panel of music experts and fans and, and things like that to help narrow down what song they wanted for, for 2018. The, the bar had been set pretty high, so they really wanted a lot of opinions. And Sam thought I was a, a good fit for that. And so we ended up picking Bones by Equinox, featuring the, the folks you mentioned. And it did pretty well. Mm. But uh, th there were a number of, of really good choices, some of which did end up appearing in other national finals, which is the case sometimes. Like a, a song will get shopped around until until a country like really really likes it, or they they have the they think they have the right artist for it, that sort of thing. But Bones just seemed like the most interesting interesting choice, uh, and I, I was really happy with how it turned out. I think it is interesting that once you start digging around in the weeds of Eurovision, which I love to do, the songwriters, the lyricists, the buyers of the performers, there are a lot more American connections than I suspect most Europeans know. There is one songwriter in particular called mm -hmm. Sharon Vaughan, who's in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, uh, and who last year co-wrote three yes. of the songs. Is there an American cabal of influencers <laughs> within Eurovision? Oh, I... I I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> uh, I might be in trouble if I answer that. Well, here's a question that I know you get asked as much as I do, and I'm curious what your answer is. When an American asks you, what exactly is your vision? What do you say? And let me preface your answer by saying I have hunted all through the Eurovision website and nowhere is that million-dollar question succinctly answered, which is very curious given that they want to reach out to the world. So what is your answer to what exactly is Eurovision? My short answer is it's a mix of American Idol and the Olympics. <laughs> uh, because you have the geography and the politics and the uh, nationalism is a strong word, but that country versus country... Everybody gets three minutes, and if they seem intrigued from there, then it's on. I have a lot more I can go through. But that, that's usually where I start. 
So you're in Turin for this year's contest, and my Facebook feed at this point is nothing but sure. Eurovision news. And I know there's big gossip around the fact that the super fantastic high-tech stage is malfunctioning. And rather than having huge rotating arches, everything is just stuck in place. And there's been some scandal around one country's dancers and performer who were too saucily clad and had to change their outfits. But tell us, live from Turin to mid-Missouri, what are the whispers that haven't reached us yet? I think we're definitely at the point where there's a lot of talk of just who's going to win, who's going to qualify. A little bit of, you know, there there is this giant sun prop that is not as mobile and useful as, as some countries had hoped. So the question kind of is, well, who is maybe benefiting from that? Who is maybe getting the short end of the stick? They can't use you know, all the visuals that they wanted to because this big thing is in the way and they can't move it. And... I think another big question that I will say in advance I don't know the answer to, but that I think has really been on everyone's, everyone's mind uh, over the last couple of days is what happens if Ukraine wins? Right. Because traditionally, if you win, you get to host. I, I think they've even said as much in press conferences that if they win, they would like to host. And I would love that as well. That would mean that things have changed very dramatically for the better, probably very quickly. But uh, deep down... I think uh, that that's unlikely. I think everyone knows it's unlikely. So the question is, well, then what happens? Do we do we look at who finished second? You know, there have been other instances where, when there's speculation that a winning country can't host, that it would just go to London or to Berlin or something like mm. that. But is it going to be that simple for something like this? And and again, I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone does. Uh, but that's that's really been a big question this week, especially as it's starting to look like that a Ukrainian win is a pretty strong possibility. I know you did a whole podcast episode on this subject back in 2019, but as a Brit, I am baffled by the last 22 years of the United Kingdom's feeble, lackluster entries into the contest. Every year I yell at the television, why does no one ask me about this? Because I mean, I could choose a winner and it's never anything that we have chosen in the past. It's almost like the United Kingdom does not want to win. And until this year, this year we have fully redeemed ourselves and might possibly have actually won the contest were it not for the Voldemort of Russia. So as your co-host Sam said, for the last 20 years, the UK have been bringing a spork to a knife fight, which is just such a great commentary on the UK's inability to find their way out of the wilderness. So it must be very exciting in Turin this year. The British delegation must be besides themselves with the chance that we might actually be in the top five. How are your British friends reacting to this year's entry? Honestly, it's one of my favorite things about this year is seeing the reaction, the, the almost nervous excitement of, oh my God, I think we actually have a good one, uh, which has really kind of given way to, oh my God, I think we may actually have a winner, which I think is a definite possibility. Really? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, Ukraine is the unstoppable force at the moment, it seems. And I think they're going to have a tremendous score from the public. I'm not as sure about the juries. I, I think they, the juries might lean a bit more towards a song like the UK or Sweden or, or Greece. Uh, those are all just tremendous songs. So if that jury score is, is underwhelming, I, I think a win is in play for a country like the UK for sure. And, and seeing... 
that realization in the eyes and in the tweets and in the posts and so on of my my British friends it's it's really been such a delight they're just so happy and and I'm so happy for them because it really it has been a long time they've sent some songs that just were miscues and just didn't work out I think they've sent some things that were really nice and just just didn't get a response for for one reason or another but it's been a struggle and it seems like this year it has come together for sure I mean we invented pop music how have we done so badly for the past 23 years is bewildering to me Our Eurovision Hour is almost up and I want to make sure we include this year's top three according to the bookmakers at this point. And I will say that there is a lot of back and forth flip-flopping between Italy and the United Kingdom for second and third place. But leading the pack by a massive margin is the Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra with a song called Stefania, written by the lead singer about his mother but which over the past two months has become a symbol of Ukraine's love for their motherland. So here are the three leaders. Ukraine, Italy is Mahmoud and Blanco with a song called Brividi and the United Kingdom's Sam Ryder with Spaceman. Mama, mama. 
tentato di volare con te su una bici di diamanti Mi hai detto sei cambiato, non vedo più la luce nei tuoi occhi La tua paura cos'è? Un mare dove non tocchi mai Anche se il sesso non è la via di fuga dal fondo Dai non scappare da qui Non lasciarmi così Non toccare in piedi A volte non si esprimermi E ti vorrei amare ma sbaglio sempre E ti vorrei rubare un cielo di pelle E pagherai per andar via Accetterei anche una bugia E ti vorrei amare ma sbaglio sempre
holes, nothing but space, man. And I wanna go home. And so that, in a single hour's nutshell, is the Eurovision Song Contest. Americans are able to stream the contest via NBC's Peacock channel, or if you have access to a VPN, then you can hop over to a European country of your choice and stream it live from Eurovision.tv or via one of Europe's many national broadcasting corporations. And that is it for another week. Nobody should look for me on Saturday from 2 till 5 as I will be glued to the Eurovision Song Contest along with another 200 plus million people across Europe, Australia, parts of Asia and maybe even America. Thank you to all the thousands of songwriters, performers, musicians, choreographers and costume designers who bring me such joy every year. And thank you to the late Marcel Bezencon, the director of the European Broadcasting Union back in 1955, who came up with this amazing idea. And finally, thank you for indulging me. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind Missouri art curtains. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!